0: This is an ABC podcast. The world watched in dismay when the Taliban returned to power in Afghanistan a year ago. After 20 years of a Western-backed elected government, how could this happen so quickly? As expected, the Taliban wasted no time in dismantling institutions and removing women's access to education and work. Abdullah al dadari works for the United Nations in Kabul. He says the Taliban remain resistant to restoring women's rights, despite criticism from Muslim scholars.
1: Every text, there are interpretations, and their interpretations seem to be, uh, as you can see, on the harshest side of the spectrum of interpretation. Recently, we had a delegation of 24 ulama from across the Muslim world who came here through the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. And they spoke very clearly to the UN and to the Afghan society and to the Taliban. And they actually detailed why in Islam you have to send girls to education. In fact, it is very clear, according to them, that if the parents have only one dollar to spend on education, it should be the girl, not the boy, the girl who will be bringing up the family and taking care of that side of the education of the family, per se, according to Islamic rules. So we are all, not just me, the 24 scholars who came from across the world were also surprised and shocked by the types of interpretations that they heard.
0: This is Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay. Afghanistan has a mountain of problems to solve massive unemployment, an economy dependent on overseas aid, and over 90% of the population living in poverty, according to the UN. So, is Afghanistan in danger of collapse? Abdullah al Dadari is the United Nations Development Programme Resident Representative in Afghanistan. In this Ear to Asia podcast, he talks to Peter Clark via Zoom from Kabul about life in Afghanistan one year on from the Taliban takeover in August, 2021.
1: More than 700,000 people lost their jobs since August, 2021. A majority of those were women. So the role of women, the participation of women in the labor force and the economy has shrunk by at least 16%. These are dramatic figures. And in addition, the, the country has suffered One of the worst dual economic shocks, the shock in demand because of the dramatic drop in income for the state and all state spending and dramatic shock in supply where supplies and inputs into the economy have been dramatically interrupted. So this is a dramatic situation that is compounded by COVID-19 and drought, years of drought and uh, COVID-19. So it's a dramatic shock that pushed the percentage of people living under poverty from almost 70 percent, so things were not perfect before, to almost 95 percent. So these are some of the main features of the dramatic consequences of the transition that happened in August 15,
2: 2021. You've used the word dramatic a few times in that answer, and I mentioned the dizzying speed. Has the rapidity of the change, the great suddenness of the change, also been a key factor in what's been happening?
1: Yes, for an economy to lose 20% of the GDP in six months, less than six months from August to December, 2021, that's an almost annualized 40% drop in GDP. It makes you dizzy. It made us all sitting every day, watching the deterioration in the GDP, watching the uh, near collapse of the banking sector, watching the humanitarian consequences of this economic collapse. It has been almost a roller coaster. Unfortunately, we've been only going down in that roller coaster in the past 12 months.
2: Keeping the wide lens on just for a moment, what are the broad differences in that decline of the economy and many of the sinews of the economy, what are the differences, if there are key differences, between urban and rural experiences for Afghans?
1: Yes. The main economic activities of the country and the main centres of relative prosperity of the past 20 years were urban centres. Rural Afghanistan has not benefited much from the billions of dollars that came in the shape of development assistance to the country before that. Now, the changes is that many urban dwellers started to move back to the rural areas because at least in the rural area, you can cultivate food and eat, which has become a serious challenge for urban populations. So that's one of the main changes. The, the other change is, uh, of course, uh, the Taliban control of the urban centers with mainly rural uh, young men. Who have never seen urban centers before. So that is another shock to the society. And the third uh, feature that you can see while driving around Kabul and other Afghan cities like I do regularly is that the the women, the appearance of women, the existence of women on the streets have been dramatically reduced. These are some of the basic features. While, by the way, in rural areas, Uh, women have never been very visible, but their role in agriculture have always been very high. So these are some of the differences between the rural situation today and that in urban areas.
2: We know historically there have been quite complex power centres right across Afghanistan. So you've mentioned the urban-rural divide or differences in the big changes that have come in the past year. What about overall the regional differences across the geography of Afghanistan? Do we see, putting aside urban versus rural, do we see regional differences as well?
1: Of course. And by the way, the main features of these regional differences existed prior to 15 August. So, for example, again, the role of women, the active participation of women in the economy and in the civil service was starkly different between the South and the North. Until today, for example, there are provinces, mainly in the north, where girls go to secondary schools, while many other districts, mainly in the south and the east, girls don't go to secondary schools. Many districts and provinces in the north, businesswomen, this is something we in UNDP are focusing on, businesswomen and women-owned enterprises are still active, and businesswomen have been able to pursue their work. This is not the same in the South and the East. So those uh, differences are, in some features, stark ones. But I have to say that in a country of more than 90% poverty levels, the differences have been muted somehow because everybody is suffering. But there are, of course, uh, different characteristics between different parts of the country.
2: I want to circle back very shortly to some of these severe privations being suffered by Afghan citizens. Let's create a contrast, though. The US intervention in 2001 resulted, as we all know well, in the removal of the first Taliban government and that eventual establishment of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. So let's take an overview together of what changes those 20 years of democratic government actually brought to Afghanistan, creating the contrast with what we're seeing now. What happened during those 20 years that have suddenly been flushed away?
1: I think the most prominent feature of the last 20 years, at least the ones I witnessed during my four years in Kabul, two years of them before the Taliban take over. First of all, in my personal opinion, the abundance of highly qualified civil servants and technocrats who have been trained in some of the best universities in the world through scholarships in the us the uk australia and many other countries and in fact i have always been impressed by the quality of those civil servants Uh, technically their capabilities their capability to network and to uh, bring knowledge into the country so that feature has changed dramatically now. Uh, You don't see most of those young men and women, especially the young ladies who were there uh, during those two years, at least for me, prior to 15 August. So that's a very important uh, feature. Uh, The other uh, difference is that the legal structure of the country, albeit still incomplete and suffers many deficiencies, the legal structure was that of a, a democratic republic. And therefore, uh, you had all the institutions for free elections, free media, uh, you had the institutions of uh, voice and uh, accountability. They were all there. We don't see them anymore. I mean, we in UNDP used to support the Independent Elections Commission, used to support uh, independent media, the uh, Anti-Corruption Justice Center. All these institutions have vanished Over one day, practically. So uh, these are important changes, very important changes and differences. In my opinion, we we went backwards decades in Afghanistan in those domains. Uh, Maybe one other uh, feature, though, is that you see today much more economic activities, mainly transit trade in rural areas, trucks going through all these rural areas, compared to the days before in the Republic. Because the formal economic activity was centred in the capital and in the cities, and now with almost free economic policy of the Taliban, most activities are happening in uh, rural areas. So this is also a stark difference with the past.
2: Some basic figures. There are about 41 million Afghan citizens, the GDP just before the Taliban took over, over a year ago, was roughly 20 billion. So it's not a very big economy, really. It's a relatively small economy for 41 million people, and you mentioned the poverty levels. So we do know that a good deal of foreign aid was flowing into the Afghan economy. What was the percentage of foreign aid within that economy
1: before the Taliban takeover? And who were the main donors? Yes, you are 100% right. The most shocking observation when I arrived in Kabul in 2019 is how small the GDP was. A country of 40 million people with massive natural resources and in a unique geographical position should not have a $20 billion GDP only. So it was an uncompetitive, narrow uh, capture, frontier state in many characteristics. So at that time, uh, foreign aid represented about 45% of the uh, government budget. In addition to uh, a large number of aid that went through off-budget funding, we are talking about 70% almost of all development spending in the country came from grant funding coming from donors, mainly the United States, which was the, the largest donor, and by the way, still Is the largest donor, followed by Germany, Japan, the EU, and other bilaterals. So this was an aid dominated economy with all the positive and negative consequences of such a characteristic.
2: So, what's become of that aid since the takeover of the Taliban? I know, for example, the United States has frozen in the order of $9 billion, but what has happened to the flow of aid to Afghanistan?
1: Of course, the the United States froze the $9 billion uh, Afghan reserves, but the US remained the largest humanitarian donor to Afghanistan. The UN asked for $8 billion of assistance for the one year, the 2022 transitional engagement framework. It received so far about $2.2 billion. And therefore, uh, I believe, we need much more for example the humanitarian appeal only was about 4.4 billion dollars out of that 2 billion were received and therefore yes there's still aid coming to afghanistan but it falls short of what the un has asked for and the number of 8 billion was designed to contain the humanitarian crisis and stave off economic deterioration and hopefully start some rebound in the economy in order to create the jobs. Uh, We know that humanitarian assistance alone is not sufficient, and as long as the economy is shrinking and jobs are being lost, the humanitarian load will continue to increase. So uh, this is a dynamic relationship I I wanted to uh, shed some light on.
2: But if we look at that 20 years leading up to the takeover of the Taliban and the flow of aid, the amount, the quantum of aid, was that sustainable in the long term, enlarging the economy within Afghanistan?
1: No. I mean, the truth is, uh, Afghanistan has become addicted to grant aid. This was not sustainable at any case. Any other international crisis would have diverted attention away from Afghanistan, as we see today in the Ukraine, for example. And therefore, If we talk about a major failure of the aid that came to Afghanistan in the past 20 years is that it did not help to generate and create a sustainable economy with its domestic sources and engines of growth that could generate enough revenues to at least gradually phase out that huge, huge dependence on grant aid from abroad. That is, in my personal opinion, the main uh, failure of that 20 years.
2: Abdallah, you mentioned natural resources, and we know there are some coal exports. I presume they're continuing. I've heard there is some degree of coal exporting to Pakistan, which is going through its own huge flood-based trials at the moment as well. But as I understand it, the economy before the Taliban takeover, the most recent Taliban takeover, was largely, around about 50%, a service economy. Am I correct in that?
1: Yes, indeed. Actually, any rebound in the Afghan economy will require rebounding the service economy. In fact, agriculture has been the least affected by the changes because for a number of reasons. First of all, the rural areas had not seen the results of the 20 years of foreign aid, I mean, there is very little impact on rural areas. You drive across Afghanistan, agriculture is still going on using ancient methods, very old, uh, hundreds of years old uh, irrigation canals and so on. The impact, therefore, the negative impact on agriculture was the least among the other sectors. The highest impact was on services, which represented 35% of GDP, and on manufacturing. And therefore, when we talk about rebound in the Afghan economy, we still talk about agriculture, which is extremely important for job creation, livelihoods, but mostly for food security and nutrition. But at the same time, uh, we need to focus as well on services and on manufacturing, because that's where the value added will come from. And that's what the country economy needs. It needs massive increases in value added to give some sort of decent incomes to the Afghan population. So we are trying to understand how we can combine humanitarian with some sort of development assistance. We call it basic human needs now, but we need to move in a very clear direction in supporting a revival of the Afghan economy. Depending on an improved agricultural value added, rebound in the services sector because that is a great job creator and of course bringing back manufacturing and increasing manufacturing through food processing and so on you mentioned coal and coal exports yes coal exports have been increasing to the pakistan steel industry thirsty for coal and now we are assessing the impact of the floods in pakistan on the demand for afghan products and what does it mean for afghanistan But also, we see an increase in uh, precious gems. We see an increase in uh, high value agricultural produce like uh, zaffran and cumin. And therefore, uh, the overall trade balance has improved, believe it or not, for two reasons. First, an increase in exports from 1.2 billion in 2020 to almost 1.8 billion we predict by the end of this year, and a decrease in imports from 7 billion to about 4.7 billion this year. So the overall trade deficit uh, has been reduced, and that may partially explain the stability in the exchange rate. Now, things are not rosy at all, but uh, if you ask the business community in Afghanistan, like we do, the general answer is the worst is over because they are adapting relatively quickly, and that's something that are very interesting developments are happening on that front as well.
2: One more question about the flow of aid into Afghanistan on this day, right now, in this time frame. What are the conduits that ensure that aid gets to the most in need for that aid, and what are the challenges in making sure that happens?
1: Well, first of all. It's very important to know that the UN, uh, OCHA, for example, conducts a quarterly needs assessment uh, across the whole country and it identifies the gaps, where are the most endangered areas, where are the needs, and uh, what type of needs the country requires. So that's one. The other one is that each UN-specialized agency, including UNDP, conducts its own specialized surveys across the country as well. And therefore, I can claim that we have a very good picture of the differences between each district, even at the household level. We understand the needs very well, and we understand the dynamic nature of those needs, because a household is receiving humanitarian aid, and then it also starts receiving some sort of livelihood aid. And that relationship, we are trying to understand that dynamic very well, because it will determine the way aid uh, flows. Secondly, there is no money going through any official institution. So no money goes through Taliban. Taliban institutions or even Afghan government institutions, if one can say that. We are directly working with the populations through local and international NGOs and through the private sector. We are very strict in applying UN sanctions and other countries' sanctions And we have very strong, we managed to establish relatively quickly, very strong risk management uh, bodies and structures within the United Nations system here in Afghanistan. And therefore uh, I can vouch and I can clearly with confidence say that the money is going to the Afghan people and not anywhere else. Now, is this 100%? The effort is 100%. But sometimes some money goes to a household that maybe deserves less than what it gets or deserves more. This is the majority of the cases, deserves more than what it gets. But mainly it's because shortage of resources, not because bad targeting. I need to stress that.
0: Al Eldadari, the United Nations Development Programme representative in Afghanistan, speaking to Peter Clark.
2: As we all know, The Taliban have been in insurgency mode, really, for much of their history. And that offers huge challenges as they take over the reins of actual governance. I'm really wanting a clearer summary from you of how their ability to govern a 21st century nation state actually intersects with their very conservative religious ideology. You've described some pretty dire declines in institutions, in banking, etc., and in civil society. How does their lack of governance experience actually intersect with their religious ideology and create the sort of dire declines that you've described?
1: Well, it's, it's a very convoluted situation. Frankly, it's not a black and white situation. In some areas, the lack of governance skills is very clear. Lack of experience, knowledge, technical knowledge, are very clear. In some other areas, the remaining civil servants from the Republic's days who decided to stay have really staved off complete collapse in those institutions, and they ensured that they continue to function. Let me give you an example. The um, central bank, the Afghanistan bank, all experts actually, all experts that have visited Kabul and interacted with them and looked at their measures to contain inflation and to manage the exchange rate and to prevent the complete collapse of the banking sector, uh, people say that those measures have been successful. Now, they have been successful on the short term because they are very restrictive measures, but that's the nature of this uh, period, which also showed uh, high skills. It showed uh, understanding of how central banking is working. So what I'm trying to say here is that the political authorities have allowed the technocrats from the Republic days to play a paramount role in managing those economic high commands of the country, like the central bank. The same, I should say, for the Ministry of Finance. Yes, eight out of the 10 director generals of the Ministry of Finance have left. And that created big gaps in policy making and policy implementation. But still, the Ministry of Finance managed to develop a budget, albeit at less than 30% of 2021 budget. But they managed to develop a budget, not transparent like there used to be, but they were willing to share some information. And they are now trying to build a medium-term fiscal outlook. The Ministry of uh, Commerce and Industry has been headed by a businessman. And that person, again, was not surrounded by the best technocrats because many of them left, managed to bring about and bring around him some specialized people who are helping with the trade policy. So it's a very mixed situation. In general, we saw a dramatic drop in the quality of governance. And also, as you said, because of the the ideological nature of the leadership, uh, things have been affected. So we lost the Ministry of Women Affairs, for example. We don't see female colleagues in the corridors of these line ministries. And our economic research showed us that the productivity of females in Afghanistan uh, so for example a woman with a certain level of education is actually more productive than a man with the same level of education and so therefore for women to exit that labor force uh, has more dramatic effects on the quality and productivity of state institutions than uh, the same number of men leaving that workforce so we see the the mixed picture of inability to govern in some cases and at the same time, we see some small areas of stability in governance. Let me add one last point on this from my side, is that the Taliban have adopted the general principles of Islamic economics. That is a small government, low taxes, and laissez-faire, laissez passer So that allowed the private sector to, you know, have almost free hand in uh, expanding And it didn't require, therefore, to have a very strong state that manages and commands the economic activities. It was a deliberate decision. And so far, the requirements for a strong state with this new economic model are much less than the requirements of a strong state for a centrally planned, controlled economy like under the Republic.
2: Just looking at the 20 years of the Republic... Where did the warlords with their fiefdoms fit into that overall power structure, or power structures, plural probably, and where are the warlords now in relation to the Taliban?
1: Well, the Taliban are in control, and there is a mix of acquiescence, coercion, agreements, coexistence across the country. So it is not the same model in every district and every province. But those who rebel are not treated uh, very nicely, as you can imagine. So there is, from that perspective, there have been different uh, models of containing them. The second thing is that the business community, which was, if I use the term, the cronies during the Republic days, many of them, if not most of them, have remained the cronies of the current era. Under the Taliban, and they manage to jump ship from one ship to another, and keep and and sometimes increase their share of the economy, as we speak. So, very interesting political economy dynamics are happening here, and in some ways, the undercurrents of the political economy have not changed because of those holding power, economic and political, and so on. The undercurrents, I mean, meaning the actual economic centers of the country, remain practically the same.
2: Abdullah, we see the effects of the incredible stringency against women from the Taliban approach to governing in Afghanistan. It's probably the most stringent in the world. It's extraordinary to watch from afar. Can you explain to us, Abdullah, what is the core religious ideological principle underlying all this, to undertake this extraordinary diminution of basically half the population of Afghanistan. Does it have deeper cultural roots or is it exclusively part of the Taliban framing of the world?
1: I have to say that you may know, I am a Muslim Sunni from the Hanafi school. That is the same school Taliban belongs to. And I can't understand, frankly, where did those interpretations come from? I am not a religious scholar, but I find it really shocking to say those were Islamic interpretations of the Hanafi school of Sunni Islam. But again, I would like to stress that I'm not a religious scholar by any standards. That's one. The other one, as you know, in every text, there are interpretations, and their interpretations seem to be, uh, as you can see, on the harshest side of the spectrum of interpretation. Recently, we had a delegation of 24 from across the Muslim world who came here through the organization of Islamic cooperation. And they spoke very clearly to the UN and to the Afghan society and to the Taliban. And they actually detailed why in Islam you have to send girls to education. In fact, it is very clear, according to them, that if the parents have only $1 to spend on education... It should be the girl, not the boy, the girl who will be bringing up the family and taking care of that side of the education of the family, per se, according to Islamic rules. So we are all, not just me, the 24 scholars who came from across the world were also surprised and shocked by the types of interpretations that they heard. Yes, in the local culture, like it is everywhere in the Muslim world, and I imagine everywhere where religion and culture interact, there are very strong cultural connotations and underpinnings of these interpretations. And uh, one can see it going around Afghanistan. You can go to a province today where we have large projects with businesswomen, as I told you. And those businesswomen uh, do show up to meetings, they come to uh, training activities, uh, they uh, receive funding, they go and to trade fairs and so on, and where other parts of Afghanistan, they cannot even leave the house. So it's a very mixed picture. So a Taliban governor in one province told me, he said, in my province, girls will go to school, including my daughter. And he's been a Taliban military commander for 20 years before the takeover. So it is not yet a straightforward, comprehensive, integrated policy. The debate still goes on within the Taliban, if I understand correctly, and between us and them. The UN is determined to focus on the question of women's economic participation and girls' education and the right of women to play an active and equal uh, role in the society. Now, I must say we explained to them that part of the $4 billion loss to the GDP that happened in the first six months after the takeover, part of it's actually $1 billion out of the $4 billion loss, is attributed to the exiting of women from the labor force and from economic activities. We explained to them that almost $600 million of household livelihoods have been lost because of that traumatic Change. So, so far, they take note of what we say, but we don't see a decision on girls' education and women's economic participation.
2: I guess another frame we can look through examining this is the UNDP's overall mission to help developing economies like Afghanistan and surrounding countries, surrounding economies, implement the UN Sustainable Development Goals. One of the key themes is to end discrimination against women and girls. So let's get more practical. What are the things that you're doing right now and what can be done to try and haul back that discrimination against women and girls and have that ripple effect, that knock-on effect in actually reaching again for some sort of sustainable development?
1: You see, in practical terms, there are about 54,000 women-owned enterprises in Afghanistan. UNDP is focusing on making sure those 54,000 enterprises survive, receive funding in the forms of grants and soft loans, receive technical assistance, receive market connectivity domestically and externally, receive advice on how to improve production and packaging and all other aspects of business. We have already reached to about 10,000 of those enterprises uh, successfully I must say. We are setting up uh, funds especially for youth and young innovative projects with focus on women, young women innovative ideas like, uh, if I may, uh, like um, venture capital. We are spreading our technical assistance and advisors across the country to reach in every district and in every village and in every town those women entrepreneurs, who proved tremendously resilient, by the way, who proved extremely courageous by insisting on coming to meet with us. Actually, I am going to Jalalabad after tomorrow, and the most important meeting we will have in Jalalabad, which is one of the most conservative cities in the country, is with a large number of businesswomen. And we asked all of them, "Are you willing to show up and?" meet with us? They said, yes, sure. We are not afraid. So uh, we need to reward that resilience and that courage with financing, support, technical assistance, and so on. So that's one very important area. The other important area is uh, we are reviving the microfinance institutions in Afghanistan. In fact, we've decided to recapitalize them because they were always dependent on aid and they lost most of their capitals And we want to direct those microfinance institutions towards women entrepreneurs mainly. So we expand the access to finance to those enterprises and be able to reach to them wherever they are, including if they have to stay at home and work from home, we are providing them with digital tools to have access to finance and to be able to do their marketing and production. So it is actually a massive operation. Focused on the economic participation of women in Afghanistan. We are also making sure that this economic participation is a democratizing process because if in the formal economic life and the formal political life, the women's voice has been receded dramatically, we want to make sure that during the town halls, And the meetings and the workshops and the events that we organize across the country, the voices of women are very strong and very loud and and, and very well heard. And I have to say, as I said before, maybe that many uh, of the local authorities of the Taliban across the country have been at least uh, silent on these things. Uh, Some of them have been proactively supportive, and some have been proactively opposing. But I have to say that the majority of the local authorities at least that we met with are supportive. And that shouldn't be surprising because we found out that the majority of the Taliban households depend partially or fully in their incomes on the women's economic activities. So it is not a very black and white situation. and UNDP what is trying to do is to expand that space for women to be active, to be visible, to be seen and to be heard. And we hope, not only hope, we are determined that we will proceed with this strategy for the next three to five years.
2: Well, Abdullah, we've been discussing gender, women and girls, that axis. Another axis is ethnicity. Now, Afghan politics, as you well know, has historically been dominated by the ethnic Pashtun people. But the Pashtun are only one of a a larger ethnic mosaic, it's quite complex and many groupings. How are these minorities, and of course the Hazaras, spring to mind, how are those minorities faring under the Taliban government?
1: Very good question. You see, according to the de facto authorities, according to the Taliban, in Islam there are no ethnic politics. According to the Islamic theory of governance, the best ruler regardless of ethnicity, religion, geographical belonging, even family uh, belonging, uh, should be ruling. Under that large umbrella, there is this justification why there isn't an ethnic distribution of power uh, in the country. Even though now we see many more junior posts in the governance structures, deputy ministers, director generals, some governors, and so on, are being given to those ethnic groups, but there isn't any formal power distribution according to ethnic identities. At the same time, I'd like to say that at least from a business community, and I always go back to the business community because in the current governance structure, the private sector has taken a much larger role than in the previous structures. So in the business community, business people that we meet in Afghanistan and outside Afghanistan, who belong to other ethnic groups other than the Pashtun, say we have never been affected, we have not seen yet any impact of our ethnic identity on the way the Taliban deal with us. Uh, In fact, uh, they were allowed to work and expand their business considerably in the last 12 months. So, Yes, there is an ethnic understanding, it seems, that you need to give something to each group, but there isn't any formal uh, manifestation of that.
2: Something we've perhaps had just looking to the side of our discussion, but let's focus on it right now. That's the displacement issue within and outside the borders of Afghanistan, the huge refugee camps. Now, even leading up to the takeover of the Taliban, there was something like... Almost eight hundred thousand internal displacements as that instability and the violence grew, but that really shot up as the Taliban took over there I don't know what the state of play is now you can update us, but it's it's nudging four million internally displaced Afghans now as we have this conversation that's extraordinary it's gobsmacking isn't it yes. Put that in context with everything else we've been discussing about women and girls and the GDP and the economy. That's an enormous number of displaced people both inside and outside the country. Place that in context for us.
1: Well, that's 10% of the population internally displaced. They are scattered around 60 to 80 uh, what we call priority areas of return and reintegration. This is UNHCR. Uh, is leading that program and we as UNDP are supporting them in that to create jobs and livelihoods and so on. The question of return to their original areas, we we are just starting a small pilot to bring a small group, about 200 people, back to their original village and uh, we want to see how does that work. The authorities gave a green light to that, but let's see what does it really mean in practice? What are the costs? What are the impediments? So we are looking into all of that. This is a massive operation. If you talk about 10% of the population, which will be moving or has been moving continuously to pin down relevant economic activities to ensure their livelihoods, or even to provide humanitarian assistance to them on the move, sometimes is a very complex situation. Secondly, they are most affected by climate change. So, the harsh weather affects them most because they don't have better housing or they don't have as good housing as the majority of the population. Well, it's not that the majority has a very good housing, but at least they have the basic protection from bad weather and flooding. So, those internally displaced have a worse plight when they face the flooding, flash floodings, the uh, very harsh weather, and you know winter is approaching now. One internally displaced persons, humanitarian assistance cost is higher than the average Afghan based in their own villages or towns, because you have to take mobility into consideration while you are looking at that internal displacement. And then it, it creates instability in the labor market, suddenly you have an inflow of 10,000, 20,000 young men seeking jobs in an area that is already saturated or doesn't have any more offers uh, in the job market. Same for health services, same for education, which is already, as you know, very vulnerable and very weak and uh, has been destabilized further since 15 August last year. So this is where we stand in general with this internal displacement, that is one of the most difficult impediments to uh, recovery in the country.
2: And Abdullah, the vast majority of those refugees living outside Afghanistan are living in Pakistan and Iran. We will allude again to Pakistan's floods, which are just extraordinary. So they're the two countries hosting very large numbers of Afghans right at the moment. Let's put the wide lens on again, if in fact, We do see a failed state with Afghanistan. What are going to be the knock-on effects to countries in that broader region?
1: We're trying to understand the pull and push dynamics between Afghanistan and those two countries. So, for example, it has been surprising that the number of people returning to Afghanistan from both Iran and Pakistan in the last 12 months was larger than the number of people who left to those two countries. It's mainly for economic reasons. They do not have jobs in those countries, and there are increasing restrictions on them. So they go back to their original place or into other parts of Afghanistan, sometimes creating yet another internal displacement situation uh, going to the cities. And now they are moving from the cities to the rural areas again. So it's nonstop movements. The overall dynamics are very interesting because until recently, our calculation was any growth in Afghanistan, uh, so a one percentage point of growth in Afghanistan, for example, would create a 0.25 percentage point of growth in both Pakistan and Iran. So growth in Afghanistan is a very good thing for both Iran and Pakistan, and it's in their interest to support that growth and stability. At the same time, it will take, with the economic situation now in the three countries, economics have no longer become the main pull factor of Afghans out of Afghanistan. With increased and improved safety inside Afghanistan, Mm. and that's the situation, you can travel much better than ever before, people seem to determine to come back to Afghanistan because there is an economic push factor out of Pakistan and out of Iraq. So we are constantly observing those dynamics, trying to understand, therefore, what type of regional uh, support programs we can introduce as the donor community. We still don't have the final word on the situation, of course.
2: So, Abdullah, finally, what are the UNDP's top priorities with regard to Afghanistan and how are these priorities being implemented? We've alluded to the potential collapse of Afghanistan. Is that a far too pessimistic view? What does the future hold in your view and what are your top priorities as the representative for the UNDP in Afghanistan, to see a better future?
1: Let me uh, maybe say a few words from the Sustainable Development Goals angle. At the moment, our studies show us that if nothing changes, setteris so paribus, but everything else is constant, Afghanistan will achieve by 2030 only 26% of the SDGs. If Afghanistan is stable and receives billion of development aid, which is equivalent to what it had received previously, it will only achieve 46% of the SDGs, which means the economic model and the economic structure of Afghanistan is not conducive to inclusive, competitive, and strong GDP growth. And therefore, it's very important now, our focus today working closely with the World Bank and the uh, IFC and other donors, our focus is, first of all, gradually improve the competitiveness and the inclusiveness of the Afghan economy. In the last 20 years, there has been growth, there have been considerable growth at some stages, but unemployment and poverty kept going up. And therefore, we need to look at that relationship. Why did growth in Afghanistan, lead to an increase in poverty and an increase in unemployment. And how can we change that? So that's one area. The other area is in the absence of a counterpart government through which you can work and implement programs and projects, how can you directly work with the communities to achieve a ground up, you know, bottom up, or what we call trickle up economics, where investing directly in and with the people would lead to a different type of growth and the higher rates of growth for the next uh, eight years until 2030, the SDGs goal year. So this is in general terms what we are trying to do and our strategic orientation. And under that, therefore, we are starting programs to reignite the banking sector, as I said, to bring back the microfinance sector online, creating uh, access to finance for small and medium enterprises, enhance capacities of the business sector, ensure that the Afghan village, which has been disconnected from the national economy for a very long time, to bring it online. Um, let me give you an example. We went to see the earthquake affected the region recently. It's a beautiful region, meaning it has some of the most fertile and the most delicious fruits and vegetables you can think of, but there are no roads we had to use the four by fours and they broke down most of the time. We used the uh, riverbed, which was dry at that time. So the first rain, we would lose that only connection to those villages, meaning that the, the widest radius of the economic activities of those villages is how far the donkey can go. And that also applies to health services and education and so on. How many women died Pregnant women died delivering on the donkeys while they are trying to have access to a health centre. So this is our strategy, this is our focus. How do we bring in everyone into economic activities and into basic social services? This is, in our opinion, the only way to improve Afghanistan's chances in achieving higher levels of the Sustainable Development Goals.
0: You've been listening to Abdullah al the UN Development Programme Resident Representative in Afghanistan, speaking to host Peter Clark for the Ear to Asia podcast from the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for your company. Bye for now.